This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Thank you guys. Open your Bibles to John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11. If you're new with us today, we are studying the Gospel of John. And this morning, we really finish the first part of our study. The first part of John really revolves around seven signs of Jesus, seven miracles that Jesus performs. And today, we're looking at the seventh an ultimate sign of Christ, which is resurrection. So scholars refer to the first part of John as the book of the signs. The second part of John is called the book of the cross. And so beginning next Sunday, we're going to begin to look at the events surrounding the last week of Jesus' life, the, the, the night before the cross, the cross itself, what was happening on the cross, the significance of it, the resurrection, the days immediately following that. We get into all of that next Sunday. Today, we're looking at chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's page 897. If you want to follow along as I read. John chapter 11, and beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to them, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your resurrection power. And we pray that your resurrection power would be imparted to us today. Lord, you are alive. You are a living God who speaks. And we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, the power of your word today. Speak to each one of us just where we need to hear from you today. We offer ourselves to you. Focus our attention now on your word. Speak to us in resurrection power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On a lonely stretch of highway in upstate New York, I-87, every once in a while you'll see signs just sporadically along the interstate and the signs are placed where the interstate comes close to the houses of people. And the signs say, no assistance can be obtained here. And of course, the purpose of the signs is to, because people don't want panhandlers and people that may be going along the road to be showing up at their door, clearly. But... It's still hard to imagine Jesus putting up a sign like that, right? I mean, we've looked at, at six signs, getting ready to look at the seventh sign today. And all of these signs of Christ that we've been looking at, they all carry the opposite message from that. 
All seven of these signs cry out, assistance can be obtained here. And today we're looking at the seventh and ultimate sign of Christ, which is resurrection. What do we see in this text? First of all, let's look at the setting of this sign. And we we see things being set up here in verses 1 through 3. John says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So it tells us in verse 1 that this takes place in Bethany, which was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from the city of Jerusalem. And in this little village lived three siblings, young adults, two sisters, and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Their parents are never mentioned. Parents have probably passed away. And so these siblings lived together his brother and two sisters, and their home in Bethany became like a home away from home for Jesus whenever Jesus was ministering in the vicinity of Jerusalem. He would stay at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And you get the feeling they were like family to one another. Jesus was like a big brother To them, Mary and Martha were like little sisters. Lazarus was like a little brother to him. They were extremely close. And it was just, their home was like an oasis of love for Jesus whenever he was in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And suddenly, Lazarus is taken ill. Now, in the first century, when people got a fever, when they were taken ill, the reaction was different. Than in our culture. When that happens in our culture, we think medicine, doctor's appointment, that type of thing. In the first century, when somebody was suddenly taken ill, it was a matter of grave concern. I mean, the average life expectancy for a man in this culture, about 40 years old. So when somebody suddenly got sick, they were gravely concerned. And, and Lazarus was very ill. And so the call immediately went out to Jesus. Jesus was in another ministry in another area at this point, and, and immediately they say, we've got to get word to Jesus. I mean, the thought of not getting word to Jesus never occurred to them. Immediately they think, we've got to let Jesus know this. Now, the, the, the simple story would be that, well, Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, rushes to the scene in Bethany, heals Lazarus, end of story. But the real story has a lot more twists and turns, as we'll see. What's the, what's the meaning of this ultimate sign? Verse 4, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. So did Jesus just not know that Lazarus was going to die? No, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. What Jesus is saying here is that This illness does not lead to death, but through death, to resurrection. He says, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now this sounds a lot like John 9, which we looked at last week. 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. It was that the glory of God might be displayed. And so it is here. God is going to display his glory through this. Verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, if there were ever two verses that don't seem to go together, it would be these two. It says, Jesus loved these people, and so he stayed for two more days where he was. What's going on here? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, as we talked about last week, there are times when God does things that to us immediately don't seem to make sense. Because God is planning on doing something that's going to go beyond our senses. There are times when God doesn't answer our prayers just as we ask. Because God is planning on doing something greater than all we ask or imagine. And so it is in this situation. Verses 11 through 13. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. The New Testament often refers to the death of Christians as sleep. Just sort of a gentle euphemism for death. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4. But Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, Christians who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then Paul goes on to say, why as Christians we, we shouldn't have a hopeless grief about believers who have died. It's because of our hope of resurrection. Because Christ is coming again and because the dead in Christ are going to rise. Which is exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Resurrection. We're moving toward that. Verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 17 and following. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then later on in verse 32, we see Mary comes on the scene. And what does she say? The exact same thing as Martha. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both of these sisters say, Jesus, if only you had been here. I mean, they want to turn back the clock. You know, if only you had been here, he would not have died. How many times have you said, if only, if only, 
we're so prone sometimes to, to look back, to want to turn the clock back and to, and to look back at regret over decisions that we've made in our lives. If only I had taken better care of myself. If only I had taken better care of money. You know, if only I had spent more time with my children. If only I had married a different person. You know, if only I had chosen a different career path. I mean, if only we, we, we do that. We can do this to ourselves and just despair and look back with, with regret. We want to turn the clock back. Jesus invites us to do something totally different. Jesus invites us to turn the clock forward and to let his, the glorious future, his glorious future, break into our present and to fill us with hope. I want to encourage you never to say those two words again, if only. Instead, say, if Jesus. Say, if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then what could Jesus do in my situation right now? If Jesus is my Savior and Lord, then what could He do in this situation with my present and with my future? If Jesus is the light of the world, what could Jesus do here? If Jesus loves me, which He does, and if Jesus possesses all power and authority in heaven and on earth, then what does that say to me in my situation right now? See, all of those things are true. And instead of wallowing in despair and regret, you know, what we ought to do as God's people is, is we ought to be exploding in hope because of who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus says, turn the clock forward. Uh, let my glorious future break into your present right here, right now going to happen. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now what she's doing here is affirming what most Jews, not the Sadducees, but most Jews believed in a general resurrection of people at the, at the end. But now Jesus is going to make this far more personal. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, what Jesus is doing here is he's moving her from just an abstract belief in resurrection to a personal trust in him. And that's a move that every single one of us has to make if we're going to be with Christ one day. We talked about it last week. It is not enough just to believe facts about Jesus, even if they're the right facts. It doesn't save. What saves is believing in Jesus. He says it twice here, doesn't he? What does he say? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks at her and says, do you believe 
this. It's got to be a personal transaction, a personal faith commitment on our part. It's not enough just to believe facts about Jesus. We must believe in Jesus. Actually, the Greek preposition here that's translated as in literally means into. Believe into Jesus. It means to trust all of your life and your eternity to Him. It means to rest on His finished work, what He has done for you on the cross and in the resurrection, that you rely fully upon Him and His finished work for you. It means that you are placing your life in His hands and giving all that you are for all that He is. Have you done that? Have you done that? If you're listening to a recording of this message, have you done that? John Stott, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, is pastor for 25 years of All Souls Church in London, um, shares this testimony. Stott was raised going to church. He knew all the facts about Christ. He even went to schools where they had chapel regularly, and he had heard all the right stuff about Jesus. He didn't have any problem with any of it. But then one day when he was in high school, a speaker came to his school and he asked the question, what have you done with Jesus Christ? And John said, I'd never even contemplated that question. Never even occurred to me that I had to do something with Jesus. Each of us has to do something with Jesus to be saved. We must believe in him, trust in Him, place our lives in His hands. Open the door of our hearts to Him. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's the scene that's pictured on the stained glass behind me. John Stott said that that night... After hearing that speaker, he got down beside his bed and he said, that night I opened the door of my heart and life to Christ. Have you done that? Have you done that? What does Martha say here in verse 27? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Listen, is that your confession? Is that your personal confession? Have you made that? Is that where you are? Martha is there. And she goes and gets Mary. And Mary comes to Jesus, sobbing. And verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. Now, when... It says here that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It doesn't just mean that Jesus was sad. There's certainly an element of that here, for sure. Yes, he was sad, but it's clear in the original Greek that this is communicating more than sadness. Because the the Greek word that's used here means anger. There's a sense of, Jesus has a sense of outrage 
At what? At, at, at who? Is he mad with these people? No. Jesus is angry at death and the devastation that death brings. He's angry at, at death and the havoc that death wreaks in the lives of people that he loves. Because you see, death was not a part of his original creation. God created a world without death. And Jesus is coming again to make a new world without death. Death is going to be utterly conquered. Death, death is an enemy that is going to be defeated when King Jesus comes to rule and reign. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Listen, when Christ comes again, death and all of the devastating effects of dying and death, it's all going to be gone, wiped out. There is going to be a death of death. Paul looks forward to that day of the return of Christ and mocks death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's taken away. It's taken away. Oh, how is that possible? It's possible because on another hill, just a couple of miles away from the hill where this takes place on, in the not-too-distant future from when this takes place, Jesus was going to be lifted up on an old rugged cross and Jesus was going to take death in our place. That's why it's possible. Because Jesus was going to take, allow sin and death to converge on Him, in Him, and take it in our place and then rise from the dead as the first fruits, as the guarantee of the resurrection of all who trust in Him. Verses 34 and 35. And He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now we see here God identifying Himself with His people. God weeping with His people. Isaiah 53 prophesied that the Messiah would be one who was acquainted with grief. And he was. God became a human being. He understands our grief, our pain. When you grieve, when you cry, he understands. And because he understands, he's able to comfort. Hebrews 4 says he's, he's able to sympathize with our infirmities. So he became a human being. And Romans 12.15 instructs us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Listen, we talked about it last week. When, when people are suffering, when they're in pain, the last thing they need is for us to come along with some trite, pat answers about 
why it's happening. Uh, they don't need that. They don't need us to just try to, you know, distract them from what's going on. What, what they really need is for a brother or sister to come alongside, just put your arm around them, and say, I'm sorry. Love you. Here for you. You know, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Jesus weeps with those who weep, and, and we can do that. But now Jesus does something that we can't do. <laughs> Verse 38 and following. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of command that Jesus gives to Lazarus here in verse 43. Lazarus, come out. You know what? That's a command that he's going to give one day to all the dead in Christ. Rise up. It's time to get up. It's time to come out. It's going to happen. So I was working on this message on, um, finishing this message on Thursday. I was thinking about the funeral of Winston Churchill, for a reason that I'll share with you in a moment. But I, it occurred to me to look up what day that actually occurred on, and I looked it up, and it was January the 30th, 1965, the same day that I, was, that I thought about this. Um, and the reason I was thinking about it is because Churchill had planned every detail of his funeral. It took place in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And he planned an element of it that featured his hope and expectation in the resurrection. Because right after the closing prayer, right after the benediction was said, there was a bugler who was way up high in the dome of St. Paul's. And he played Taps, which is, you know, the universal signal that the day has ended. It's often played at funerals. But then immediately after the last note of taps, he had another bugler stationed on the other side of the dome that immediately broke into reveille, which is the universal signal that a new day is dawning. It's time to arise. And, you know, it was his testimony that death will not have the final say for believers. It, the, the last note will not be taps, not for God's people. It's going to be reveille. It's time to get up. Come out. Arise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have a living Savior, Lord, uh, forgive us for 
wallowing in regret or uh, despair or anything like that. Lord, we should be exploding with hope. Exploding with hope. Our hearts should be surging with hope because of who you are. Because your son is alive. (laughs) And Lord, we pray that we would just allow the, the glorious future that you have for us to break into our present and to fill our lives with hope. Lord, may we live in that hope and that expectation that Jesus is Lord of the world and our Lord and our Savior and He's coming and because of that, life is new. Life is new and eternity is wonderful. As we just continue to reflect before the Lord, listen, have you reached the point in your life where you've made that, that personal confession that Martha makes here? Lord, I believe that you are the Savior. Have you believed in Christ? That made that move where you, you move from just sort of abstract belief about of, of facts about Jesus to believing in Him. Trusting completely, relying on completely on His finished work. Opening the door of your heart to Him. You can do it today. You do it by faith. Turn to Him right now. Say, Lord, I believe. I've placed my life in your hands, all that I am for all that you are right now. Trust in him. Give your life to him. Jesus tells us that when we do that, when we believe in our heart that we're to confess with our mouth, let others know, confess him publicly, unashamedly. In just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation. If you've trusted in Christ, We want to invite you to come. Just slip out from where you are. As others stand, they'll gladly make way for you. I'm going to be here at the front. Just share with me what God's done in your life today. We want to rejoice with you. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, we invite you to come. If there's a need in your life for prayer, you come. Father, we give this time of invitation to you. May Christ be glorified in it. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.